0: Welcome to Trending in Education. This is Mike Palmer. I'm joined today by Roger Spitz, who is the president of Techestential and the chairman of Disruptive Futures Institute. He's the lead writer on an interesting set of volumes called The Definitive Guide to Thriving on Disruption. We're going to try to get into as much of it as we can on today's episode. Before we do any of that, I want to welcome you to the show Roger, welcome to Trending in Education.
1: Amazing. Thanks so much, Mike. There's no more important topic that one can cover than education. So really an honor, and I see it as a very important work you're doing.
0: Awesome. Thank you for joining. And I've been following you for a while, and it's really exciting to see this all come together. Actually, real quick, if folks want to learn more about any of this, where should they go?
1: Thrivingondisruption.com and volume 1 is is available very shortly on Amazon and ebooks and apple books and everywhere pretty much uh, where books are sold.
0: Yeah, awesome. And like I said it's it does all fit together. There are four volumes. They are on their way out. We'll get into that in a bit. To begin, we always like to get our guests origin stories. What got you to this point in your professional life? You have an interesting tale to tell. We'd love to hear it in your own words. No, that's cool Mike. So, thanks for that. I I think they almost two
1: distinct phases to my journey, which is carrying on. There's no destination yet, so it's an ongoing journey. But there are two distinct phases, I guess, to my being where I am today. One is quite a long career in investment banking. For 20 years, I was an investment banker. I was global head of mergers and acquisitions, covering the technology sector. So advising on M&A, strategic investments, venture capital, fundraisings, either the shareholders, boards, investors, companies. And that was interesting. I mean, you meet a lot of interesting people. You're constantly thinking about the future and strategy. You're working what seemed to be all the important things. And that was great for some time. At some point, I got the feeling that the things that were keeping my clients up at night, the topics that were interesting me, We're no longer the sort of cookie cutter playbooks around M&A or strategy or or anything. Mm -hmm. You can see a world where entire industries were reshaped overnight, where drivers of disruption were quite fundamental. And where the challenge was becoming how to think about this unpredictable world, how to realize that the world is actually unpredictable and how to connect the dots. So I spent some time... Going down a rabbit hole, I was in London for many years and six years ago, moved to San Francisco and went down a rabbit hole around complexity and systems and futures and foresight. And long mm. story short, that is when I realized that those were actually the things that interested me more. Longer time frames, more fundamental understanding of change, broader systemic transformation than a transaction by transaction. So that's the big kind of professional journey. And then one other topic we'll touch upon briefly later, no doubt, is that before that at school and in education myself, I was fascinated by philosophy and the idea of agency and contingency. And what does that mean, existential philosophy for our beingness? And without sort of dwelling too much on it now, I'll just say that when I moved back into areas of interest to me around impact and philosophy, connecting that with the field of foresight and futures, I was able to reconnect with that interest of, of just broadening the perspective of what is actually agency and how do I apply that to my own life.
0: Right, right. And that's a lot. And it that's where I, I will give you credit that it is a pretty profound undertaking what you have put forward here, where it is outlining a transformation, a paradigm shift, if you will, from the way we maybe understood the world previously and the way we should understand the world looking forward and then also what that means to us as individuals which is where education and existential psychology and zen Mm -hmm. buddhism and all these different things interrelate and then it also has a business lens to it in terms of how to increase value and think about how one can perhaps manage an, an, an enterprise get involved in some entrepreneurial activity so it does all fit together as really a new frame, a new way to understand the world moving forward. It's all founded on the concept of disruption. Mm-hmm. Disruption is used in a lot of different ways. Can you explain to us what you mean by disruption? And maybe from there we can get into how you can thrive in a, in increasingly disruptive times.
1: Yeah, indeed, we, we took it quite holistically and that includes for the wording of disruption and maybe so to set the scene. The work, although I led it and wrote quite a lot of it, I had years and hundreds, if not thousands of hours of discussions with many people who contributed. And in particular, an amazing Brazilian journalist and futurist and technologist who writes science fiction called Lydia Zuin, with whom she helped me kind of shape the architecture, the complementary areas from a kind of boring middle-aged white male that I, in, on Wall Street, Um, and help me take a broader perspective and solicit the various inputs to, to take that broader view. And the way it then transpires to the concept itself of disruption, indeed, is that for my thinking in this work is that disruption is no longer merely a single or specific event, it's a constant. So disruption is a constant. And in a sense, the cost, of assuming that the world is stable, predictable, and controllable is going through the roof. Not just in terms of the actual cost of risks, but in terms of also the missed opportunities. Hmm. So we have a very neutral lens on disruption. Much will depend on how you prepare for it, you know, your window to the world, and how you respond to it. And so when you study disruption, there are two two aspects which I've found is often used as an implementation of disruption. One is creative disruption, and that's Joseph Schumpeter, who describes the process when industrial mutations destroy old paradigms. But through that, there's a creative process of regeneration and innovation. Examples he gives in his work, which was written, I think, in the 1940s, 50s, is around, you know, after the Second World War, certain countries that had to Rebuild, and that process is also brings in you know the duality of disruption, and we call that creative disruption, disruption one point zero. It's mm-hmm. in a sense quite macro, maybe slightly more industrial, institutional. The second one, which is obviously the most studied, and probably what ninety, if not one hundred percent, of people whom you mentioned disruption for would recognize this, which is this slightly more specific Silicon Valley disruption where it's often used around the term from Clayton Christensen, disruptive innovation, mm-hmm. where there's specific characteristics in terms of how an innovative product disrupts old markets. So there's a formula, it's specific, mm-hmm. it's often innovation, technology, or product development related. Yeah. And when we look at that, those two definitions, I think for the past few decades, they resonate. It makes sense. They describe a lot of the types of disruption, I guess. We describe systemic disruption as Disruption 3.0 as an era where disruption is simply omnipresent. In other words, it's a constant, it establishes new paradigms, which themselves evolve into different states. So it's interconnected, they're large scale, multi dimensional, multiple drivers of change. And they collide, they have their own complexities, paradoxes, pluralisms, and they bring fundamental change in a way which is not isolated or discrete, which you can't just replicate or have a playbook as to how to react for a given disruption or how to drive a given disruption. And so that systemic disruption has multiple implications in terms of how to frame the world and how to stay relevant and how to become relevant. And again, to your point, whether you're an individual, whether it's a business, whatever it might be.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then the related point, you know, we've talked on this show about BUCA and BINA or BINA is the other acronym that I've seen out there talking about mm-hmm. volatility, fragility or anti-fragility. You have a framework around AAA+, which is similar in that there's certain mindsets and ways of operating, ways of being that set you up to perform better in some sense for us to be anti-fragile rather than respond in a negative way to the increased volatility and disruption. Instead, we thrive in that context. Can you describe that and the framing that you had, because I did find that to be a useful construct.
1: Thanks for that. And you're right. There's no shortage of either acronyms or frameworks or ways of describing either the environment or how one should proceed in in, in the context of those environments. So for us, one of the implications of systemic disruption is that you can't just take advice from experts or from consultants. As you might have been able to, and just follow that playbook in the past. Don't get me wrong; it's not an anti-science, it's not anti-expert, it's not any of that. And you're in education; I think you're, you 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 think about those things all day long. It's really just a question of, in our complex world versus complicated, where it is nonlinear. Mm -hmm. where there's unpredictability, where cause and effect can only be established exposed, where it's emergent. Those features of complexity mean that you can't just rely on there being a right answer, ex ante, or Mm -hmm. relying on experts. So it really comes down to the, the distinction which people like Dave Snowden and with the Kinevan framework make between complex and complicated. And so in that complex world, we believe you can't just take advice and rely only on the advice. You can take advice and much is very useful, but you can't rely on it to solve every problem. Not everything is as simple, quote unquote, as fixing an airplane or sending a probe to Mars. Right. So we actually derived, and I know this is very annoying for the acronym police because there are too many acronyms in the world and it's inappropriate to actually create more. But we felt there were gaps in some of the terms used to describe the environment, such as VUCA or TUNA or BANI or, or what have you. And we label our perspective on our environment as a result of systemic disruption as UNVICE. Unvice being the opposite of advice. You need to think on your feet. You need to find a mindset and tools to figure things out in an emergent way because you can't just rely on advice. Mm. And unvice is simply, UN is for the unknown. So it's in a sense the ambiguous or the uncertainty from VUCA, unknown. The V is volatile. I is intersecting because we believe that It's the collision and the intersection of many different, often seemingly unrelated fields or themes or topics which create disruption. Again, neutral can be positive discoveries. It can be challenges or knock-on effects and spillovers when things get messy. Mm -hmm. So the I is the intersection. C is complex and E is exponential. Mm. We're not necessarily pushing the kind of Silicon Valley technology, exponential wonders and that. We're just simply acknowledging that, unlike Vulca, for instance, we have to integrate the trajectory, velocity, and speed of change. Mm-hmm. And Vuka describes an environment was created half a century ago, which maybe things were less hyperconnected and moving fast. So, in that environment, which is vice for systemic disruption, what we consider is that you basically indeed need a kind of frame which is itself not specific. So instead of just looking at futures of foresight or just looking at one particular aspect, philosophy or, or what have you, we have our own framework which draws on what we think is relevant from other clever people, practices, things that have been tried and tested for decades, if not millennium. Hmm. But we put them together as what we call a being A framework. And that comprises different elements. The first one is around antifragile, anticipatory, and agility. Mm -hmm. You often have this debate between professionals or futurists or academics as to whether the world is just emergent and only the present exists and you shouldn't be thinking long-term future or what have you. We don't take a dogmatic view. We just think from a practical perspective, you need all of these three features. Mm -hmm. Antifragility, is laying the foundations, which strengthen even if you have shocks. There are certain features, and we can talk about them, and it's Nassim, Nassim Taleb in Fragile, who really brings home that more than adapting and being resilient when things happen, change creates opportunity, and trial and error, randomness, getting upsides from that is very much something you can integrate with the right foundations. You're acknowledging that we're the complex environment. We're acknowledging that there are many interdependencies and many of the things of our complex world. Those anti-fragile foundations, it's not even something you do day to day necessarily as such. It's like a foundations of a house. There's certain decisions you've made or investments you've made or DNA or way of thinking that is going to make you anti-fragile almost irrespective of what happens. Right. The second element is anticipatory. So this is very much the bread and butter of the futures and foresight field, which you're very involved in. So it's really the capacity to prepare for change. You're thinking of the multiple possible futures. You're deciphering the signals in mm-hmm. advance. You're interpreting the possible next orientications. Yeah, thinking about how things connect. So that's the conventional anticipatory in terms of being cabled into the future.
0: And just to jump in there, that's where I thought the connection to Zen mind, beginner mind. The idea of being anticipatory when from eastern philosophy there is the notion of just being being present and being in the moment which allows you to be more anticipatory you do also touch on unlearning it's really a great survey i would recommend folks to you know the the bibliography alone was quite useful where you are drawing from a really broad cross-section mm. of of volumes to to get to something that that i do think is cohesive and and i also think when there's a risk of things getting a little dry there are elements of either storytelling or popular culture or surprising connections to a broader canon of knowledge that for me kept me focused and getting back to your point kept me at that more anticipatory Mindset.
1: Yeah, we tried our best. And that's where Lydia and the many other contributors supported me coming back from a more strategic yeah. kind of background to have that kind of support. And you're right, there's a strong link in terms of the framework with, with Zen Buddhism and Eastern philosophy. And that's through, in a way, the agility, the third pillar. So you have mm. anti fragile, anticipatory, and agility. And agility, which is a word used in in many ways by many different people, but we use it in the sense as the agility to bridge short-term with long-term decision-making. In other words, we acknowledge that only the present exists and that however strong your foundations, however anti-fragile they are, however much you're well-versed in terms of exploring the futures, ultimately you make decisions in the here and now, and that is emergent. And so in that emergent agility, indeed, you have beginner's mind with Shoshin, from Eastern philosophy and Zen Buddhism, and you have the aspect of understanding the impermanence with mujo in Eastern philosophy, or you have existential philosophy, which is you exist and create your essence through your actions. Your decisions, agency, and choice create what you are. And so it's the combination of the right foundations as anti-fragile, thinking and constantly working the futures and the possibilities, but then in the here and now, having the tools, the agency for that agility because that's emergent.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it does make sense. And I was going to go to the existential philosophy angle next and this concept of agency where to me that is the silver lining to a certain extent for folks who are freaked out, for lack of a better word, by constant disruption. The idea is that in that ever-changing universe, that is where agency free will the individual's ability to chart her own path is where there is a bit of a silver lining to this and this is in the place where you begin to talk about beta testing yourself developing as an individual and this is also where education becomes a very critical component where faced with these challenges you are positioning this as a challenge and an opportunity to lean into and that's really where you address education head on since this is a podcast about education i'd love to get some of your thinking because i know you've spent quite a bit of time incorporating that into your frameworks
1: Yeah, it's a very big challenge. I set myself to not just go for something formulaic in terms of, oh, let's make it neutral or positive, this disruption thing. And on one hand, I wanted to move away from the very narrow and specific and naive to a degree definition of disruption, Mm -hmm. as in you have in Silicon Valley or technology. On the other hand, you know, I admire some well known futurists who are kind of everything is amazing and abundant, and the miracles of technology will save the world and that. Right. But at the same time, I did want to kind of acknowledge the neutrality, the positive, the negative, and the risk, and the agency you have on, on, on this. So where does existential philosophy come into it, and how does it translate to education? I had this interest, which I mentioned, which was a bit rusty in terms of existential philosophy from the Heidegger, yeah. Kierkegaard, Jean-Paul Sartre. And I met a few years back Rowley in Finland, who had done a PhD in some of these metaphysical and philosophical questions. And I basically engaged a discussion with him to structure our thinking and framework around what that looked like. And to cut to the chase because we could spend hours on it and we have written a lot that's published on these specific topics, an existential framework to decision-making and uncertainty, Yes, the crux of it is very simple. It's to say that if you had a life where things were predetermined, where you had no choice, where things were linear, stable, and predictable, basically the implication of that from a kind of philosophical perspective is that you have no freedom, agency, and choice. Everything is predetermined. Conversely, the fact that there's disruption and constant change, it simply means that, you know, to use such analogies, you exist, you Come into the world and then you create your essence. And that's indeed, that's also a feature of anti-fragility, your beta testing, your trial and error. You make mistakes, you learn from the mistakes, you're doing a number of things all the time. And that is basically what we call the agility and the creating of beingness. And it's fortunate that this disruption, as in discontinuity, something that's discontinuous as nonlinear change, because that allows you to have a blank page and to create. Whatever you, you have the agency for, and so that idea of agency and existential philosophy works throughout. When it then goes to education, you can see how you know it's associated with reframing what success is. You know, valuing failure, valuing imagination, and um, problem solving, critical thinking, learning and learning, relearning. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone being a teacher and an educator, the importance of systems and futures thinking, integrating. Th- Topics holistically, rather than only relying on experts. So, the read across of an existential philosophy for disruption permeates to education, to how we think about life, to how we run a business. And you know, we we're not just trying to kind of put a marketing spin on it. We genuinely feel that unless you realize what disruption means and have the agency, and realize that it's thanks to that that you have freedom and choice. Mm-hmm. It's a very important thing. I mean, it's really the opposite of that. And not wanting disruption is almost like advocating for a predictable world where you have no agency.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's really interesting to me how that then connects to artificial intelligence and the idea of things that are complicated can be solved by automation, artificial intelligence, et cetera. Things that are complex, you know, uh, infinite games, the way in which humans can engage in the complexity that you're describing is by reframing and asserting their humanity. You're someone who thinks of the future a lot, and you also think about the role of technology and artificial intelligence. These are themes that we talk about a lot on this show, particularly how it relates to the future of work and how we think about education, you have a lot of interesting and, dare I say, provocative thoughts around the current state of education and what it was designed to do, what it's doing arguably not well and what it could do better. I'd love to hear a little more of that in your own words, because you do have, I think you have some really interesting perspective to shed on what we're currently delivering in our educational systems and what you might recommend as improvements.
1: Yeah, so this is where your role and what you do day to day is so important. We touch on education as a major theme, and for many reasons, we believe important. We're going to touch upon some now, but this is where education. I mean, there cannot be a more important aspect. And the reason, the two reasons, in my you know h- humble opinion, the first one is simply in terms of the importance of education is simply if you take Our complex world and our complex systemic world, and if you take Donella Meadows, the levers for change, the most important and strongest lever for change in our complex systemic worlds is education and mindsets, Hmm. our worldviews. So it starts there, if you want to make change to the things that we don't feel work in the world, in terms of governance, in terms of incentive structures, in terms of many things. It really starts and boils down to changing education as the strongest level for change. The second point is, indeed, the link with AI, we make the following, which is basically a warning shot to humanity. Today, complicated, where cause and effect is understood, et cetera, et cetera, AI is quite good. And humans are quite good, too. And we know, really for many areas with wonderful initiatives, how to use technology with human capabilities, drug discovery and AI, and some of the wonders of technology and humanity and our expertise and science and everything. Now, coming back to the distinction with our complex world, today, AI is not as good with nonlinearity when cause and effect can't be established ex ante and everything you know. However, with machine learning, let's not underestimate how much AI is evolving. Mm -hmm. So coming back to humanity, my question is not so much what is AI doing or will we reach singularity or how many jobs will be displaced. Figures which no one has a clue, really. Anybody speculating on that, just really no one has a clue. The real question, we do have a control over this, and this is really the most fundamental aspect that they can be, is what is humanity doing to upgrade their capabilities to be able to be more fluent and conversant and to stay relevant in our complex world yeah and therefore that is where humans should be legitimate now the challenge is that if you look at leadership teams if you look at governance if you look at the educational systems they don't really necessarily focus on those features which allow you to make sense and respond well to complexity and so our thesis is really that you need to change the educational system so that then the other changes in our complex world will take place. And that means to a degree, it's the elements of anti-fragility, right? It's if you look at the language of anti-fragility, you could apply it to what educational systems should be. You need to deal with uncertainty. You need to think about the entire system and not work just on discrete, isolated special cases. You need critical thinking, heuristic DNA needs to be more emergent, you need trial and error, you need to reframe failure, you need accountability, you need to be agile, to tinker. So it's those elements of developing optionality, of trial and error, versus a more rigid, fragile, knowledge-driven question, you know. And you can look at different systems, Israel or others, where the prize is not to answer very well a question to which there's a known answer. The prize is to discover that something we thought impossible is possible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I saw the distinction between efficacy and efficiency, where can you actually achieve a meaningful outcome? I did want to get to the Israel example because I think it's a really interesting one. And also, when you did talk about Israel as a case study, you did describe their humor. It is another place where you do talk about the importance of fun and playfulness and other elements of mm. discovery i know that wasn't the exclusive lesson in in the israel example but i did find that to be a really interesting one where education at times loses its energy its playfulness i have a 3 year old son and i do in many ways aspire to the level of curiosity and playfulness with which he's engaging his curriculum i did find that to be a really interesting element where there is a nod to humor, there is a nod to relevance through edutainment that that I found quite refreshing. So perhaps a note on that, and then I'd love to get into the Israel discussion.
1: No, that's great. And maybe we can connect the two, the two aspects. The Israel is an interesting one from an educational perspective, and another. And of course, it has its issues and folds and, yeah. and that. But it's still for a relatively small country of less than 10 million people kind of punches above its weight in terms of breakthrough innovation and science and things which it's not just the next shiny object from Silicon Valley. It's genuine progress for for scientific discovery, for how to grow water and food yeah. from deserts and things which are really hitting the 17 UN SDGs very centrally. And I spent quite some time in Israel to really understand disruption. I thought, okay, if you can talk more right about disruption, you gotta have a reasonable sense about how things take in, in Israel. And one of my senior advisors to the Disruptive Futures Institute, in fact David Salomon, he is has an extraordinary background in dealing with change and disruption and technology. And he was an advisor to the prime minister for 36 years and involved in special arts and all kinds of all kinds of things. But and I also spent a lot of time with Inbal Arieli, who writes a lot about education, is also an entrepreneur and that. And when you look at education there. I came from the outside with a naive education must be amazing in Israel because of how well they, they do it in terms of R&D and patents and entrepreneurship and all these things and science. Yeah. And then I came out with the following takeaway, which I think is what you're, you're kind of alluding to, which is it's actually not the formal structured educational system. That's kind of okay, if not lousy or weak or average. It's informal education. Mm. It's what you learn playing in a junkyard. It's the term that's used in Israel all the time, which is Balagan. It's that state of chaos with the promise of opportunity. Mm. It's, you're right, that, you know, Israel, like many countries, have essential questions and risks and and a particular history. And one way of dealing with it is a particular type of humor and a critical view on their own lives and and worlds. And that helps a lot. It's comfort with this chaos, comfort with Balagan. They use it to thrive on disruption, literally. It's, yeah. You can have chaos that is it's just chaos, or you can have chaos, to use the words of my friend in Balarielli, yes. who wrote an amazing book on education and entrepreneurship in Israel, which is, it's chaos with that promise of opportunity. And it's informal. It's also, it's, some of it is informal, some of it is formalized, but not formalized just through the school program. So for instance, everybody does a military, women, men. yeah, And that is a process of cooperation, of cross-pollinization. And opportunistic in the 1990s, when there were a million Russian immigrants coming to Israel, a million out of an eight million population, it's a lot. From one day to the other, you get 15% of your population. Israel already realized the challenge of cybersecurity and realized that if they face an existential risk, if they did not address cybersecurity. And so they used this informal way of educating and leveraging on talent, literally to become the world's leader in cybersecurity, a lot through these amazingly clever and bright engineers. And so all of these features, you can see that it's not a it's not like Singapore, which is they have the best K-12 model and the best mathematics teachers, and all that's great. It's a small, emergent, agile, unvice type oh, yeah. of informal education, which is not the prescribed advice or playbook kind of
0: education. And that's a contrast between a Singapore and an Israel, for instance. Mm, mm. Yeah. Really interesting. And I would Encourage folks to track down a lot of what Roger is talking about because it does certainly get the wheels turning and this content will continue to be coming out through Roger and through his, his organization. As we're getting closer to time, Roger, I do know another area that we haven't discussed around futures, but is certainly an area that futurists are thinking a lot about. Younger generations are thinking a lot about. It's a place where a lot of disruption is happening, is around the environment. I know Mm -hmm. that is something that you've thought a lot about and you are being engaged in a lot of different ways around how we should contemplate how the world is changing in new and unprecedented ways due to environmental disruptions and catastrophes and other major weather events. Can you describe some of what's going on in that space and how it relates to the framework?
1: Yeah, we touch upon indeed the environment quite a lot, if only because it would be incomplete to look at, sadly, disruption and drivers of fundamental change and disruption if we didn't include climate in it. And again, bringing back to the duality of a lot of the things that we write about and a lot of the world, a lot of the world There's duality, right? There's also huge opportunities for individuals, for businesses, in terms of what we call green essence, which is a renaissance for green. But to link it to the futures and foresight way of thinking, there are two aspects which we really try and hone in deep in terms of the energy transition and climate. The first one is really in terms of the category killer, literally, pun is intended, but the category killer of the don't look up syndrome, which is what we call existential foresight. In other words, today, we believe you almost need a chief existential officer, kind of CEO beast or two, who's looking at the these existential risks and the possibility of irreversibility is not only for climate, it's also for AI and technology. And it's the nonlinear aspect, which is that small elements can have a very disproportionate Outcomes and effects. The fact that it's neutral, you can have positive and negative. So, an existential crisis is not just a negative thing of worrying about disappearing. It's also how you reinvent yourself. And then it's that aspect of kind of monitoring and thinking about the risk of irreversibility, which puts drivers of disruption like climate, AI, or technology in their own category because irreversibility, as stating the obvious, it means that you could reach certain milestones. Which make it very hard or impossible to then reverse. You know, if, if the planet is no longer is if the planet is inhabitable, it kind of is a you know hindsight is a little bit problematic at that mm-hmm. point, right? Mm-hmm. So the first area, as I mentioned, is really existential foresight. How should one think as almost like a chief existential officer? Yeah. The second thing is really mm-hmm. that distinction between point solutions and the kind of Clayton Christensen definition of disruptive innovation versus systemic change and versus systemic solutions. And that's acknowledging that especially topics like climate, you can't disassociate it from the multiple interconnections of the real world. And so anything that's kind of developed as a kind of nice, shiny, next point solution is how does that look in a systemic world? And how does change become effective in a systemic, complex world. And there you come back to the role you're playing with education and the levers for change from Donella Meadows, which is, if you think about climate and take her levers for change, you're thinking about the mindsets and education. And mindset is not only at school, right? It's every everything you learn, read, see, absorb, etc. So, The first and strongest lever for change is that that view. How do people perceive the challenges of the world? And some of the things that don't look up, touch upon, right? The second thing is the structures. What structures do we have in place, which is less effective than obviously education and mindsets as a lever for change, but still very effective. What are the regulatory, the governance, the incentives, the alignment, the accountability? What are the structures that determine the outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. Especially Mm -hmm. incentives. And then the patterns and trade trend. How are you monitoring things? What are the disclosure requirements? So I spend a lot of time at the different levels of these levers for change. The work we write, the institute seeks to educate. I spend a lot of time with technology companies and people, companies look at energy transition, trying to make that distinction as to what's effective change and systemic versus point solutions. I spend a lot of time including with Stanford and with IEEE around disclosure and ESG. What should disclosure look like? I'm on a a Climate Intelligence Council of a company called Servest, which is an AI company platform which does does climate intelligence, which allows you at at the asset level to understand beyond the mitigation, what should you be doing to build resiliency into your actual assets with everyday decisions, you know, Mm -hmm. should boards and management teams. So like many of these topics, it's not a specific aspect that you can just kind of tick the box on. It's really thinking... Through what systemic change involves and trying to kind of imagine how things connect and the next order implications of those
0: yeah it's it really is eye-opening it is something for folks on the business side if you are listening these frameworks are extremely useful roger you do have a practice where you are helping organizations navigate this world Mm -hmm. of continuous disruption and then for us as individuals the disruptive futures institute is starting to provide more content like what you're describing so that we have additional tools to help us navigate this increasingly disruptive and challenging times, which also include opportunity. Before we get your concluding thoughts, Roger, as someone who's got range and is spanning the globe, trying to understand what's happening, what's emerging, is there anything new and emergent that is on your radar that we haven't talked about so far that you think our listeners might benefit from hearing about?
1: Yeah, I so we don't kind of, we try and focus on the signals versus the noise, right? So we're not, I mean, we monitor as best we can many different signals and that, but we don't kind of fuss unduly on any individual one. I think the one thing that, that we're finding day to day, unfortunately, actually, is the extent to which the world's governance, incentive, and educational systems are misaligned with the sustainability of humanity. Hmm. And so while it seems like a kind of negative or distressing observation it also really is important that we acknowledge that because it's only by acknowledging that in the same way as acknowledging where humanity is to rewire your education and to make it more effective and all the work you know you're doing mike on the education front it's only by acknowledging the extent to which we need to make those changes that That then we can. But I, you know, you see it every day, whatever aspect you look at it, whereby we're still kind of relying on assumptions, relying on a predictable, stable, and controllable world. And the cost of relying on those assumptions is really increasing. And so if you ask me for anything new or noteworthy, I would say, start observing the extent to which that is the case and start thinking about the extent to which we have agency to maybe have it otherwise.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there is a lot of psychology, in addition to philosophy, integrated throughout the work, a lot of nods to behavioral economics and the work uh, of Daniel Kahneman, um, among mm-hmm. others, which is another part of this emerging zeitgeist that that I definitely think you tapped into in some really wonderful ways. Roger Spitz is the president of Tech Essential and the chairman of Disruptive Futures Institute. The guidebooks that are on their way are the definitive guide to thriving on disruption. Roger, as we're concluding here, I always like to give our guests a chance for some closing remarks. How can you sum up some of what we've discussed so far today?
1: Two, two elements for sort of key takeaways or wrap up or what have you. I think one is, and we used this so many times so you know you and your audience will have to forgive you for using it again but really as a wrap-up it's really agency agency it means you appreciate uncertainty but you also realize that it is you know paradoxically thanks to uncertainty that you actually have freedom agency and choice mm. the futures are open they're wide open you have a role through agency in defining those futures yes it's indeterminate yes it's unknowable But that's precisely gives you kind of that blank page to invent and that. So I can't emphasize that enough. Lacking that appreciation of agency and the role we have in the world and the possibilities and the fact that change is not necessarily a negative is a limitation, which is unfortunate. The second element to to wrap is really just understanding how one is impacted by disruption. So I think the three elements for me that impact, how you are affected by disruption. The first one is perspective. If you expect the world to be completely predictable, linear and stable, and suddenly there's a deviation from that imagination or the assumptions you have, of course you're gonna be surprised. If you consider change to be a constant, then less so. So the first one is perspective. The second thing is your anticipatory mindset and your degree of preparation. So that's kind of one of the A's from anticipatory. And the third element, in terms of how you respond to disruption and how you'll be affected by it, is simply, what is the nature and timing of your response? Subsequent to any disruption, what do you actually do? What decisions do you make? How do you respond? And that's kind of the agility in our AAA. If you can have the right perspective to the world, if you are thinking in an anticipatory way, and if you can think about how you're responding to that, you will be affected differently from someone next to you for the exact same event.
0: Yeah, it all fits together. It takes a lot of work to see how the pieces start to pull together. But I would encourage folks to follow what Roger's putting out there, get more in touch with a lot of this information, because you can see how you are living what you're talking about around a systemic perspective. All these different pieces do actually interrelate and cohere in a way that Makes sense and we all want to thrive in increasingly disruptive times. Roger Spitz, thanks so much for joining us on today's episode.
1: Thanks so much, Mike, and really look forward to continuing to see the amazing impact you're having on 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 all the education front and getting the word out there. These are such important topics.
0: Excellent. And hopefully our listeners got as much out of this conversation as I did. If you did, please subscribe, write a review, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is trending in education.